outside my back door, between the stone terrace and the tool shed. There are buttercups in bloom, and behind them, flowering celandine wood poppies. And then a golden rain tree, a locust draped in blossom. All three of these groups of plants are flowering in exactly the same shade of yellow right now. I didn't plan it this way. I didn't design this part of the garden at all. The locust tree was planted by the previous owner of the house, not by me. The buttercups and wood poppies introduced themselves. I merely allowed them to grow. When they emerged from the ground, I didn't pull them out. They've come together to make a beautiful scene through the connection of an accepting place. Welcome to A Garden in Crisis, a podcast about the ways that gardens sustain us in challenging times. My name is Jonathan Cook. I'm a gardener at home. Professionally, I'm a researcher of human culture, working to find the potential for meaningful moments hidden within ordinary objects and experiences. Of course, very little that's happening this year can be considered ordinary. We're in a time of crisis. All around the world, people are having to make extreme adjustments to their lives in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. In Pakistan, Habiba Salman is helping people to adjust by growing resources in their gardens. Gardening, however, is just one of the many ways Habiba helps. Pakistan is basically blessed with the green economy. It can be, we can say that it has a very favorable situation over here for growing um, any kind of crops. The spring is just started. And towards the midsummer, then then the choices get decreased. But there is a very good potential that people could do kitchen gardening and even they could, you know, grow something in pots. So it's a it's a warm weather now. Uh, nothing frost frozen or nothing like, you know, um, harsh weather or something. But it's really good. We have good rains. The soil is really rich. And, uh, you know, it's favorable. People should do kitchen gardening. I've been working on gender-based violence and child rights and child protection related stuff as well. So I have my major in behavioral sciences. So the first thing it releases, it, it, it could help release a lot of stress and it keeps you engaged in a very natural way. And it's just, I must say it's meditating. It's, it's dealing with nature and being yourself. And secondly, it's engaging and it's result oriented. You could see you do things and you see it grow. So it could give you, you know, and a hope in times of crisis. And uh, personally, that's how it benefits you. And if you talk about generally stress relief as, uh, you know, to deal with your domestic issues. So one can opt this as a, as a very, I must say, a powerful tool to deal with your day-to-day stress-related burdens. In Pakistan, there's been a pattern in recent years of people from the countryside coming to the cities 
in search of economic opportunity. With the arrival of the coronavirus, however, the cities have become dangerous centers of viral spread. Those who could return to rural communities for the duration of the pandemic have done so. But this reverse migration has exacerbated local food shortages. Habiba, in response, has organized a campaign to get these people to revive the ancient practice of kitchen gardens. Uh, trying to target people in the far-flung areas, the mountainous regions where I belong to, uh, mm -hmm. that's the far northern part of Pakistan, uh, urging people to grow something in their gardens and do not confine themselves to their homes because uh, when there is crisis situation, that's the most hit area, the most devastated areas, uh, because as soon as the, the glaciers start melting, so there are lots of floods and stuff. So the, that part of the country gets cut off from the rest of the, the country. And comparatively, it's a more advanced uh, uh, area in terms of education. So uh, there, are, there is less population, uh, people have less children, and if you go on to the number counts, then less people uh, uh, do not count more for such governments where there are millions of other people in other provinces. So uh, that's why we are trying to urge the indigenous people to grow for themselves, to stay alive. In Pakistan, with the increased urbanization, uh, I would say more slums have been created rather than cities, that people from the rural settings have fled to the cities and they have created more slums. They dwell in the surroundings of the cities with the lesser facilities. So, uh, and they work on as daily wagers, majority of them. So at uh, this time, uh, it's really special because uh, now those people who were working on, uh, on uh, as daily wagers are going back to the village. And when they go back to the village, then it means that they are uh, trying to increase the burden of food insecurity. So that's why uh, we are urging them not to stay home do something for themselves in their gardens because they have enough land. In the past, those lands were, uh, were going barren. People did not grow enough food because they could work on as wages and buy. Um, some do keep some hens and some kind of tamed animals, uh, even in the urban areas, if they have bigger houses. So, um, and some of them do grow, uh, uh, you know, uh, when I go for a morning walk, I do see people have done wonderful kitchen gardening, you know, in their, in their yards. So I could see lettuce and tomatoes and onions grown. Habiba came to her current work, not out of an abstract love of gardening, but through her professional role as a social worker, addressing multiple human needs. Her kitchen garden campaign helps communities grow enough food to eat in spite of the breakdown of Pakistan's supply chains. However, at the same time, she has also observed how the activity of gardening reduces stress, thus contributing to the original goal of her work, the reduction of gender-based violence. 
our digital industrial culture tends to approach challenges with analysis, breaking down issues into their constituent parts so that they can be dealt with individually. Management deploys problem-solving techniques that take a direct, linear approach, aiming to simply get the job done without taking unnecessary time to consider the context in detail. The goal in our efficiency-driven, automated world is to create a minimally viable product, doing as little work as necessary. Gardens solve problems in a different way, though. They work slowly through daily investments, few of which pay off right away. Gardening is not as quick as digital engineering, but the advantage of the gardening approach is that it brings many benefits at once, far beyond the direct goals that are initially envisioned. A garden is a maximally viable process that brings holistic benefits to the people who tend it. Benjamin Vogt, author of the book A New Garden Ethic, lives and works as a garden designer in Nebraska on the other side of the world from Pakistan. Nonetheless, he shares with Habiba the vision of gardens as projects that can address multiple problems at once. As an example, he refers to a program encouraging farmers to plant areas of prairie amidst their fields. There's this program out of Iowa State called the STRIPS program, and, and it's um, helping farmers convert literally strips of their of their agricultural fields and turning them into prairies and this you know it, it's going to reduce the the runoff of the topsoil uh, it's going to keep water on the site and it's also going to bring in the pollinators and beneficial predator bugs to increase the yield of crops in the american midwest the strips program from iowa state university increases biodiversity as it improves crop yield but also reduces soil erosion and provides water conservation. Most of us, of course, don't live out on the Great Plains. Benjamin explains, however, that just as restorative agriculture can address many of the problems of conventional agriculture simultaneously, gardening can help people in urban centers deal with multiple challenges at once. 75% of people are going to live within urban areas in the next decade or two. And where do they engage with wildness and nature? It's, it's only at their schools, homes, and businesses. And right now that's mostly lawn, a few trees and a lot of wood mulch. So we need to find ways to bring wildness where people live and work because not only is it going to be healthier for them um, mentally and physically, but it's going to help them understand the importance of of these natural ecosystems or these revived ecosystems and want to fight for them in larger areas outside their urban environment where it's even more important for for wildlife because the urban areas they're just they're relatively small when you compare it to like geez the entire tall grass prairie region from canada down to texas 
there have been several studies that I've read that, that show that uh, you know, kids who have a complex view of nature out of their classroom windows, we're not just talking lawn and a tree, but um, flowers and shrubs and tall trees and short trees and all kinds of birds and butterflies flying in and out of this landscape. Kids who have that view of the classroom see improved test scores and ability to work with others in groups and, and generally have uh, you know, greater attention spans. Um, there have been studies with health, hospital patients who recover faster when they have views of complex nature. So, I mean, if, if you look at urban areas, how they tend to be designed now, it's just a lot of concrete and a lot of lawn because that's the easiest thing to take care of. But when you have more complex nature, you're going to be lowering the heat island effect. You're going to be making sure there's less runoff to overwhelm storm drains. You're going to be cleaning the water. You're going to be cleaning the air. And uh, God, there's one study I read that said you can even increase consumer spending when it's at a greener area. Benjamin describes how complex naturalistic gardens can improve our mental and physical health at the same time that it restores some of the ecological health of the planet. What's more, these gardens can enhance educational achievement and spur economic development. The power of a garden is that a garden isn't just for one thing. It's not a simple tool. A garden is a complex system that's up to many things at the same time. The Irish gardener, Fanula Collins, approaches her garden from the direction of food production at first, but through that single entry soon encounters many other aspects of growth at work in her plot. I think there's a sense of reconnecting back with food that really nourishes us and food that really, we know the source of it. We know that it has been produced in a way that's kind to nature and not against nature. One of the things that this virus is kind of teaching us is that we've become really disconnected from the source of food, from nature and from each other. That, that food is also our medicine. And if we can eat well, we probably have a better chance of building our immunity. And that eating well, I think, is, is that instinct that's coming back um, to a lot of people to really, really be mindful, if at all possible, to, to eat as close to the source as possible, as close to the soil. And I think that we've probably just forgotten as a species, as a culture, how to care. And it would be nice if we learned that. And we may even find that by doing that, we, we can slow down this trajectory that we seem to be hurting ourselves towards and on. Fanula talks about how, on a literal level, the culprit in the COVID-19 pandemic is a virus. Our vulnerability to the virus, however, reveals an underlying cultural crisis, a disconnection from the origins of our food. The crisis we're all going through, Fanula says, isn't just about a medical disease. It's a cultural malady in which neglect has replaced care. Growing a garden, she suggests, can both help our bodies rebuild their immunity and reacquaint us with the ability to nurture. For Fanula, it's all about connection. No crisis stands alone. As humans, whether we're gardeners or not, we live in ecosystems, 
and in ecosystems, nothing exists independently. Each part is connected to all the other parts, and when one part of the system suffers, other aspects of it are likely to feel the pain as well. We have to learn from the trees and healthy ecosystems, and we have to live within our ecosystems, and we have to live communally and in community and in relationship with each other, because I think that, that more chaos is probably, we're, we're going to reach other points of chaos. Some of us now feel like we're protected and above all of it, and some of us are in the depth of it. But I think that it's that sense of who are you relating to and how are you relating to them. I think we're all seeking maybe to feel just simple connection with the earth again and with the, our landscapes. I think now we're all part of a human family that's, that's very mixed up and we can create new stories and be parts of new circles and new families where we can actually learn how to love each other better. When this coronavirus kind of filters through and takes what it's going to take and leaves what it's going to leave after it, I think that the new normal has to be about living within the boundaries of nature and living within the cycles and having a completely different understanding of why we're here. And our mission could be a small mission to maybe reconnect and grow food for a small neighborhood. Fenula teaches us that we don't stand apart from our gardens. We live as part of them. Human beings are not machines. We are not problem-solving algorithms. We are social animals, and we prosper to the extent that we form connections with others. Over in Maine, my brother... James Cook works as a professor of sociology on his campus. He has used the connective framework of a community garden to bring students together socially, even as he teaches them about the structures of social networks. We knew that in order to sustain the garden, we had to make it organizationally connected. So what does that mean? Organizationally connected means that people tend to invest themselves in a project and continue in a project when their work there also serves the purpose of maintaining connections with other groups, like a friendship group or like a, a class group. So we tried to create a situation in which people would make ties and keep ties. And if they were bringing in ties from other places, other classes that they were in as students or other student groups that they were involved in uh, or, or community groups that they were involved in outside the university, that they would be reinforced there. And so it would be easy for people to stay. And it worked. People came as individuals, but more often they came as members of groups, and they stayed as members of groups. They formed this friendship network within the garden, and it gave them that meaning. And because it had that meaning, because it gave them that social experience, we were able to continue that. 
On the one hand, there were people who were at the university but didn't have any friends and they needed some friends. And spending time with people, weeding beds and hauling dirt is this kind of low pressure way to form friendships. There were other people who were part of class projects and not just sociology or community psychology, but for instance, art. There was a photography class who decided to make the university's community garden part of uh, an exhibition. And so they would come to take these pictures. They would take pictures of bees. They would take pictures of plants in various states of growth and decay. They would document changes. There were even computer science students who uh, looked at inputs and outputs, not in computer systems, but in terms of plant systems. So what are the different inputs that go into the plant and what are its different outputs? And uh, ran analyses based on that. The community garden at the University of Maine crossed disciplinary boundaries, blending sociology, biology, economics, art, and psychology all into one project. It was a place to study, but also a place for people to be together, to grow a human culture through horticulture. There are two perspectives from which to consider a garden in crisis. On the one hand, we can focus on the problems that we are facing. When a crisis such as COVID-19 arrives, it doesn't come alone. Challenges are connected. The coronavirus pandemic has been damaging not only because the virus is robust, but because humans have built a global commercial culture that assists in the pathogen's spread. The social damage inflicted by the pandemic wouldn't be so extreme if we hadn't already adopted an economic system that depends upon vast economic inequalities, with the majority of the wealth hoarded by a small number of people. On the other hand, the interconnection of our problems makes it possible for us to respond with interconnected solutions. In a garden, after all, the plants that we grow are not as separate as they would at first appear to be from a casual view above the surface of the ground. In the soil, mycelial networks of fungus form connections between the roots of different plants with resources flowing through underground channels to create and maintain a complex living system. When we choose to involve ourselves in that system as gardeners, we become connected as well, in many ways. Gardens are centers of regeneration in our bodies, our minds, our communities, and our ecologies. A garden gives as it takes. Take some time, then, to grow something this week. And you won't be sorry that you did. Another episode of A Garden in Crisis comes next week. And until then, you can find a transcript of this episode and other episodes as they come at agardenincrisis.com. The music that you're hearing now and at the beginning of each episode is by Jason Shaw. 
from the album Audionautics. <laughs>